Welcome to another episode of the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As it turns out, this is not just another episode, but episode 25. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you've recommended it to friends or relatives, then I am very grateful to you. As always, you can find us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. If you have a response to what you've been hearing, send your comments or questions or observations to unbecoming at gmail.com. One last thing. I humbly ask that you consider donating to our Patreon. As you'll see on the Patreon website, supporters of the podcast are able to access my new short podcasts. I've entitled this series Sunday School with Dr. Benson. In case you're asking, why should I support the podcast? Well, that's a good question. Here's one answer to that question. If I can say this also with a bit of humility, I think our discussions on the podcasts have depth and accuracy. When I was teaching at an evangelical institution, I often said to students, I will not lie to you. I will tell you the truth as best I'm able. Well, I'm hoping that this podcast will continue to grow. It's doing well given how new it is. I'm simply not interested in trying to be shocking or bullying people into believing anything. Recently, I listened to a podcast or a lecture from someone who is well-known in the podcasting world. His name is Jordan B. Peterson, and he's, of course, uh, a much uh, more prominent figure than I am. But I was shocked that someone who claims to be an intellectual, who has a PhD and has taught at, you know, decent universities, could descend to the depths of ad hominem against Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. I do understand that both of them are somewhat scary thinkers, because they ask difficult questions. The person giving the lecture spent most of his time saying over and over that Foucault was a nasty person. To be honest, I never met Foucault, though I've read two very long biographies about him, and I find what Peterson says and what the authors of the biography say to be, shall we say, significantly at odds. But I have no interest in defending Foucault as a person in the same way that I have no interest in trying to make ad hominem attacks against anyone. The podcaster I'm referencing spent most of his time claiming that Foucault and Derrida were relativists who were destructive. He didn't give any evidence for this view. He didn't cite any sources of either of these people. But I don't think you can read either of these figures and come away with that impression. Perhaps the best book on Foucault is that by Gary Gutting, who used to teach at the University of Notre Dame and was also an editor of The Stone, a series of articles in the New York Times written by various philosophers. Gutting's book is titled Michel Foucault's Archaeology of Scientific Reason, which has a section that addresses the relative in question with great philosophical precision and concludes that Foucault is actually not a relativist. Or you can read Gutting's shorter book, titled Michel Foucault, A Very Short Introduction. On page 53 of that book, Gutting says that Foucault is, and here I'm quoting, not interested in the sort of theoretical generalizations that lead to radical relativism and skepticism. His project is to question specific claims to cognitive authority. I hope you can see the enormous difference between questioning specific claims of truth versus questioning all claims of truth or authority. If you couldn't question anything, you'd never be able to change your mind. But of course, if you were going to try to challenge everything you believe, that also wouldn't work. 
since the only way thinking is possible is to assume that certain starting points are justified. Likewise, Derrida questions a whole lot of things, but he does this in the name of truth and justice. This is how he responds to the charge of relativism. He claims that the characterization of deconstruction as, and here I'm quoting, skeptic, relativist, nihilist, is false. That's right, false, not true, and feeble. It supposes a bad, that's right, not not good, bad, and feeble reading of numerous texts, first of all mine. I don't know how he could have made that more explicit. Further, in his philosophy, he begins speaking of justice as undeconstructible, which is to say that the concept or the idea of justice is precisely what makes any critique of a particular action as either just or unjust possible. It's an absolutely necessary ideal if we want to have anything like a just society. But here's a question. Those people who want to condemn Foucault and Derrida without reading them, what's in it for them? Why would someone want to dismiss something they've not even read? The most charitable interpretation of such a facile dismissal is that it's motivated by fear, which I completely understand. If I thought that any thinker would lead me to relativism, I'd want to stay away from that too. But there's an important distinction here. Foucault spent his time examining how power works. He analyzes, for instance, how those in hospitals get labeled as patients or those in jails get labeled as criminals. His point is that identifying people according to labels is connected to power. If you don't immediately see that, let me point out that in the second account of creation, that's Genesis chapter 2, we read the following. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. That's Genesis 2.19. Do you see how naming the animals gives Adam a kind of power? The same is true for any people who set up the parameters for any kind of hierarchy, such as the founding fathers of the United States, who within an American context are often mentioned as if they were just short of deity. In an earlier episode, we discussed how hunter-gatherers simply had no hierarchy. There wasn't anyone who was in control, and in fact anyone who tried to set himself as the ruler would be put down by the community. We don't live in that world, though. Instead, we live in a world in which there are still kings and queens, a lot fewer of those today than in the past, presidents, prime ministers, dictators, Virtually all organizations have some kind of chain of command or authority, even if it's just your line manager. In fact, in the academic world, there is now an entire hierarchy that didn't exist a couple decades back. Put another way, one of the reasons college has gotten so expensive is that those administrators make a lot of money, or at least a lot in comparison to the professors. At one school where I've taught, professors wanting to make changes in the requirements for a course had to submit those changes to the administration. That's right. I couldn't just set up a short quiz or short writing assignment. It had to be first approved by the administrators. In such a setting, professors have only limited power in terms of setting the parameters of the course. Oh, wait. You see, I just used the word power. Foucault is right that power is always part of the equation. There can be better or worse uses of power, but there's no do door to a world in which there's no such thing as power. In a nutshell, that's Foucault's point, one which I think is neither radical nor relativistic. 
But let me also point out that the idea of radical relativism is a kind of chimera or ghost. It doesn't actually exist. That is to say, there aren't any people who actually fit this bill. You might be more open to certain possibilities than someone else, but everyone draws the line somewhere, which is to say that nobody is really a relativist. However, the idea that there are radical relativists has been very useful to those in power. And here I must go back to Peterson. Earlier I said that a charitable interpretation of his tirade against Foucault and Derrida is that it's motivated by fear. But that might not be the only motivation. Perhaps you heard the episode on Foucault in which I pointed out that he thinks a community, he uses the term discourse, but I, I don't think the, the difference here is important, a community establishes itself by saying, this is who we aren't. We're not like those bad people over there. If someone can be labeled a relativist, then such people can be discounted or even despised. In other words, labeling someone a relativist is a power move. Thus, a somewhat less charitable reading of what Peterson is doing is that he's trying to establish the enemy and then denigrate the enemy as much as possible. The problem with what Peterson is saying is that it's not based on any facts. Instead, it's just simply the construction of a straw man. And this leads us to the topic for this week's episode, the sacred science. As in the previous episodes, I've been using the category set up by Robert J. Lifton in his article on ideological totalism. Regarding what he calls the sacred science, he writes, the totalist milieu maintains an aura of sacredness around its basic dogma, holding it out as the ultimate moral vision for the ordering of human existence. It's important here to understand what it means to say that something is sacred. I've suggested before that religion is constituted by setting up something as sacred for a particular community. But here's the thing. Once something becomes sacred, it's really no longer open to inspection and questioning. It becomes a thing that cannot be questioned. In evangelicalism, there are quite a few things that cannot be questioned. Alas, sometimes you only discover that something is sacred after you've said something that's not allowed. I was teaching a course with a large number of students and said very casually that the Bible doesn't provide a reason as to why God created the universe. I still think that's correct. You can read various possible motivations into whatever biblical passages you like, but it's the case that there's no statement in the Bible regarding God's motivation. However, I soon discovered that this was not something I was allowed to say, at least not in class. I was summoned by the authorities and told that while I had some options in terms of what I could say regarding why God created the world, I couldn't say that the Bible is silent on the matter, even though that's the truth. Having written extensively on idolatry, this struck me as yet another instance. Trying to pretend that we understand the mind of God is idolatrous. There are many people who claim that God created the universe to show his glory and be worshipped by his creation. But that gives us a picture of God as very needy and insecure. And that seeps deeply at odds with the very concept of God. If God's really God, I don't think God needs anybody's praise or vindication. Again, this sounds like another idolatrous conception of God that implies that God is somehow dependent upon us. But if that's the case, then God simply isn't God. Or to put that differently, if God is dependent upon us, then the idea that God is omnipotent becomes a problem. 
it's not possible to have it both ways. This problem of not being able to question basic assumptions or doctrines or beliefs is truly a problem, though not one specific to evangelicalism. I'd like to come at this from another angle. The anthropologist Richard Sosis did a study of 200 different communes that existed in the United States during the 19th century. Communes, of course, are groups of people who have decided that living according to the usual norms of society isn't for them. What makes them interesting is that they're composed of individuals that normally aren't related by blood. Instead, such individuals have certain beliefs that bind them together. When Sauce examined these 200 communes, he discovered something very interesting. Whereas only 6% of communes that lasted for at least 20 years were secular in nature, 39% were religious. If you think about it, that's over six times the success rate of the secular communes. What led to that cohesion? Sossus examined various kinds of factors, but the one that stood in all of these cases of communes which survived was that they asked something difficult of their members. Members were required to sacrifice for the community, and that took various forms such as communal standards for dressing or requiring fasting or forbidding alcohol or tobacco or some other sort of substance. Here's the thing. The stricter these standards were, the longer the commune endured. Interestingly enough, such high expectations helped the religious commune survive, but they actually had no effect on the secular ones. So what's that about? Sosis postulized that sacralizing these standards was what made them work to keep the community together. It was the shared sense of the sacred that provide cohesion for the group. Another anthropologist, Roy Rappaport, described this phenomenon as follows. To invest social conventions with sanctity is to hide their arbitrariness in a cloak of seeming necessity. It shouldn't be difficult to see that requiring members to adhere to certain standards is somewhat arbitrary. One can always ask, why these standards and not others? But that's the whole point of making them seem necessary. While these kinds of behaviors combine to group together, they also require that the seemingly arbitrary be sacralized so that they become absolute. Many listening probably know that once upon a time, fundamentalists who eventually became evangelicals had very strict rules about certain kinds of behavior that often were summed up by the phrase, we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with the girls who do. Over time, of course, people started asking questions about these rules pointing precisely to their arbitrariness. Why would, say, tobacco become such an important thing? You could say, well, smoking's not good for your health. But note that the fundamentalists put such a rule in practice long before it was eventually found out just how bad smoking cigarettes turned out to be for your health. The only response is to be something like, we as a community decided this is something we don't do. And so such communes became known for their restrictions. It was precisely, though, those restrictions that kept the community together. If you know anything about recent developments in evangelicalism, you probably know that most of these restrictions have gone by the wayside. Back in the 1970s, the idea that one should never attend plays or see movies simply bit the dust. Most evangelicals thought that such a rule didn't make sense anymore. Thus, the same thing has happened with most of the other prohibitions, dancing, playing cards, etc., etc., it would not be unreasonable to conclude that these changes have made evangelicalism weaker 
Perhaps that's the case. But of course, there's nothing more powerful to provide group cohesion than finding someone or some view to hate. Moreover, as evangelicals have become less strict, they have also become more strident. It would be way too much to say that all evangelicals hope to take over society, but there's a substantial number who want exactly that. You probably have heard of the term theocracy and perhaps know that some prominent evangelicals have promoted such views. Back in the day, there were certain distinctions that were made between real fundamentalists and evangelicals. One of those distinctions was that fundamentalists wanted nothing to do with the government. But that started to change when Jerry Falwell Sr. created the concept of the moral majority. Falwell was under the impression that the bulk of Americans back in the early 1980s were part of this group. But that began a change in the ways in which fundamentalists and evangelicals saw themselves. The historian Bruce Barron puts it like this, To the degree that they, evangelicals, are exchanging their former posture of cultural accommodation for one of resistance, one can say that there is a dominionist trend within evangelical thought. You notice that he uses a different term, dominionist. That translates roughly as someone who believes that Christianity ought to dominate secular society. In case you're wondering what this might look like in practice, consider this statement by Randall Terry, who founded Operation Rescue. That group operates with the following principle, namely, and I'm quoting, if you believe abortion is murder, act like it's murder. Terry describes the goal of his organization and the basic dominionist approach as follows. I want you to just let a wave of intolerance wash over you. I want you to let a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. Our goal is a Christian nation. We have a biblical duty. We are called on by God to conquer this country. We don't want equal time. We don't want pluralism. That's about as clear a rejection of tolerance for anyone else or opposing views as you can get. No pluralism, just the evangelical Christians in control to make sure other views don't get equal time. But it's more than that. Terry is encouraging hatred. This is such a strange thing. Jesus, of course, in the book of Luke, is said to have said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. It's not possible to reconcile these two things. You can choose Terry or Jesus, but you can't choose both. The economic historian, I'm using this title um, from his New York Times obit, Gary North, had an even greater agenda, that of Christian theocracy. He published 50 books to advance that agenda, one which can be described as Christian Reconstructionism. North was one of the folks urging people to picket abortion clinics. He also prophesied that Y2K would prove to be our deliverance, that's his terminology, for he believed that it would be such a catastrophe that Christian theocracy would finally come into existence. At least from my point of view, the idea that moving from 1999 to 2000 would provoke a catastrophe leading to Christian theocracy was simply a crazy belief. But I should note that my neighbor, not the big Catholic family who were wonderful, the neighbor on the other side, really believed that Y2K was going to be something big. He had stocks of food, a generator, and presumably all the stuff you'd need in a catastrophic situation. As to North, 
he discovered the writings of the Calvinist thinker R.J. Rushduni. Together, they were founders of the Christian Reconstructionist movement, with North taking Rushduni's theological beliefs and adding in free market economic theories. By the way, I, I'll have to do a podcast on this. But for now, let me simply say that it is a mystery to me how the free market somehow links up with Christianity. But there are many evangelicals who believe that capitalism is part of God's plan, which of course gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, Jesus saves. That's a view held by many, though North claimed that economics needs to begin with the proposition, God cursed the earth. You might think, okay, this is a radical on the margin thinker, and you'd be right. But he provides a very clear statement of what he wants, and it's not to stay on the margins. Quoting him, So let us be blunt about it. We must use the doctrine of religious liberty to gain independence for Christian schools until we train up a generation of people who know that there is no religious neutrality, no neutral law, no neutral education, and no neutral civil government. Then they will get busy in constructing a Bible-based social, political, and religious order, which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. I can't imagine a clearer blueprint for action. Note that this hinges first on promoting Christian schools to teach students that there's no such thing as as neutrality. On this point, of course, I can only agree. To have a society in which the state and religion are separate is not neutral. In fact, I don't think that there is anything like neutrality. But having said that, I'm again reminded of Foucault, who likewise insists that there's nothing neutral and thinks that belief in neutrality has no basis and also that it's dangerous. It's interesting that North and Foucault can agree on something that in both cases is so basic to their thought. But you can see the progression of North's thinking. He suggests that Christians, I'm pretty sure he means fundamentalists and evangelicals, should use the religious liberty in order to eventually deny such liberty to what he calls the enemies of God. Do you notice how these kinds of distinctions work? You can either be a friend of God or an enemy. That doesn't seem to be much in the way of middle ground. In stark contrast to this view, we have what Jesus is reputed to have said, namely, whoever is not against us is for us. In other words, Jesus doesn't seem all that interested in drawing a clear line between us and them. But that line is central to the thinking of dominionists and theocrats. In a book co-written by Gary North and George Grant, we read the following. Christians have an obligation, a mandate, a commission, a holy responsibility to reclaim the land for Jesus Christ, to have dominion and civil structures, just as in every other aspect of life and godliness. But it is dominion we are after, not just a voice. It is dominion we are after, not just influence. It is dominion we are after, not just equal time. It is dominion we are after, world conquest. That's what Christ has commissioned us to accomplish. We must win the world with the power of the gospel, and we must never settle for anything less. Thus, Christian politics has as its primary intent the conquest of the land, of men, families, institutions, bureaucracies, courts, and governments for the kingdom of Christ. That is a remarkable reading of the Great Commission in which Jesus is said to have said the following, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the part of the commission that's normally quoted, but it's important to realize that this mandate is encapsulated within two other statements. The one that precedes reads, All authority in heaven and earth has been granted to me. Again, that's something that Jesus is said to have said. But folks such as North and Grant seem to think that all authority has been given to them. From my point of view, this is just another troubling form of idolatry. However, what follows the Great Commission is also troubling, for it reads, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. As always, it is hermeneutics that is at stake. The Commission says, make disciples of all nations. But what does that mean? The Greek term is ethna, which can be translated as races or nations or ethnicities. But it's very hard to make that mean something like convert the governments to Christianity. One could always say, well, that's what Jesus was thinking. But of course, we don't have access to what Jesus was thinking. And assuming he means something like governments requires reading our way of thinking into something said two millennia ago. It should be clear that this is cultist thinking. Lifton describes it as having, quote, an exaggerated claim of airtight logic, of absolute scientific precision, which means that the person who dares to criticize it or even to harbor unspoken alternative ideas becomes not only immoral and irreverent, but also unscientific. He goes on to say that, quote, the assumption here is not so much that humans can be God, but that our ideas can be God. So you might be asking at this point, who actually falls into this pattern? That's a good question, and here's an example. Back in 2012, I was sent a book titled Christian Jihad, Neo-Fundamentalists and the Polarization of America by the author Colonel V. Donor who founded Children's Hunger Relief Fund. Along with the book came a letter addressed to me personally that began, I wanted to share my latest book with you because I suspect that we are on the same quest, the quest of peacemaker, the quest of birthing a provocative yet civil conversation of reconciliation. He goes on to add, as someone who formerly regarded civility as weakness, dialogue as compromise with the enemy, and reconciliation as betraying God, we should defeat, not entreat, God's enemies. And spent decades preaching that there is no gray area, no neutral zone in the internal war between God and Satan. I've shifted. Donor opens his book by telling the story that when he heard over the public address system at his high school in Orange County that Kennedy had been assassinated, he immediately spoke up and said, shocking his classmates, not surprisingly, that he was executed for treason because he was, and again I'm quoting, soft on communism. He believed that Kennedy's assassin should be given the Congressional Medal of Honor. He goes on to tell us that such views were rewarded by the fundamentalist world, which was, and here I'm quoting, preparing a stealth strategy to ensure all Americans submit to God's law. He personally identifies as having been a leader of hardline theocrats called Reconstructionists. But he went from being a spokesman for such views, he appeared on 60 Minutes and a lot of different talk shows as a proponent of Reconstructionist th thinking, to putting that into question. In other words, he started to question the sacred science. 
just in case you're wondering why the term science keeps popping up, you have to keep in mind that fundamentalism, which became evangelicalism, was a response to the scientific investigation into the Bible. And fundamentalists thought that they needed to be able to justify their view as scientific in response. I've already mentioned creation science, but one can see this same sort of approach in the apologetics of fundamentalists. In response to evidence that there seemed to be problems with the Bible, fundamentalists presented what they considered scientific evidence to the contrary. More specifically, Donor says that he believed that his group possessed God's objective word, while the unenlightened, including most Christians, were hopelessly lost in a maze of subjectivity. All of that is part of the quote. But then he had an epiphany. He writes, I began to ask myself a basic question. Just how was it that we were privy to God's objective truth and everybody else was so pitifully subjective or just plain wrong? For him, the penny dropped when his pastor, whom he describes as a conservative theologian, made the point that even if the Bible contains objective truth, we can only interpret it subjectively. And then he realized that the whole idea of objectivity was simply something not attainable for human beings. If you've been listening to the podcast, you already know that the claims of objectivity shouldn't be taken too seriously. But you should also realize how deeply against the grain of evangelicalism that goes. I was constantly being told that I needed to emphasize the absolute truth that evangelicals possess. But I don't even think that the concept of absolute truth makes any sense. Would it be something like knowing in such a way that you knew all there was to know? Or would it be knowing in such a way that you had immediate access to the truth? Interestingly enough, at this point he quotes Nietzsche saying, everything is perspective, which is not quite what Nietzsche says, but close enough. As Donner goes on to say, with the death of my longtime mentor, Rushduni, in 2001, it seemed that the neo-fundamentalist paradigm that had formed so much of my life was also dying. I could no longer believe that I could perfectly interpret God's inerrant word. In the wake of 9-11, a few months after the death of Rushduni, Donner came to believe that, quote, the main difference between our people and their people, i.e. Islamic fundamentalists, was that ours, with the notable exception of bombing abortion clinics and assassinating doctors, had not yet resorted to violence. The change that happened in his life was remarkable, and here's how he describes it. Once I realized that my objectivity was nothing more than an illusion, the consequences were clear. The necessity of granting others the benefit of the doubt, of striving for confidence rather than certainty, of embracing pluralism, and last but not least, following Jesus and loving people rather than condemning them. And then he goes on to say, and he puts this in italics, I had been born again, this time as a post-conservative, post-fundamentalist, post-modern Christian. I think this description of being born again or changing one's mind, metanoia, of course, is the word that uh, the New Testament uses, which is often translated as repentance, but it's really more accurately conversion, is what challenging the sacred science is about. The problem with labeling something sacred is that once that label is applied, then it becomes so difficult to think about it. Because thinking about it in any way that involves critical thinking is seen as somehow sinful. But there's also a linguistic problem here. 
The words critical and critique are often used to mean something negative. But these words go back to the Greek term krine, which means simply to weigh. To weigh is to decide whether someone is for or against something, in agreement or in disagreement. Alas, the only alternative critical thinking is something like dogmatic thinking, which assumes that one has already come to the right position and that any further input is unnecessary and unwanted. Dogmatic thinking is a hallmark of a cult. If something cannot be questioned, you need to think, what are they hiding? Remember Donor's question to himself? To quote him again, just how was it that we were privy to God's objective truth and everybody else was so pitifully subjective or just plain wrong? If you react to that point by saying, but there are lots of liberals who don't question things, my response would be, there are unthinking people on all sides of every question. Which also means that culture's thinking isn't just a trap for evangelicals. But it's a trap that is, I think, especially hazardous for evangelicals when they claim that they have something like absolute truth. I can still remember a student who said at the end of one of my courses, I went to a Christian high school. What I've learned from this class is that much of what I was taught is untrue. On this topic, I had a running disagreement with someone I'll leave unnamed. He insisted that evangelicals could and should consider their beliefs to be absolute, final, and unchanging. To make that point, he was perfectly comfortable ending his sermons by saying, this is the word of the Lord. Anyone who grew up in a Christian liturgical tradition would recognize those words as what the reader says at the end of a Bible reading. But I'm talking about a person who thought he was equally justified identifying his own words as the word of the Lord. Once again, if you think you're speaking for God, it's so easy to come to think of yourself as somehow being God. In case you're thinking that I'm talking about something academic or removed from real life, let me assure you that this topic is also about personal experience. The difficulty with holding such beliefs to be so sacred that they cannot be questioned is that any doubt about them tends to cause guilt. You end up feeling like you're doing something wrong just in exercising your intellect. Of course, the language of faith here is highly dangerous. If one simply responds to any question with, you must have faith, then that undercuts any possibility of thinking otherwise. I've mentioned this Episcopal priest named Leo Booth, who grew up in England and then ended up in the United States. And he has written that religion can become an addiction. Let me quote him here. He says, religious addiction is built on absolute, unquestioning, uncritical acceptance of a set of teachings. On this foundation, abuses are committed in the name of God. The key ingredients are fear, shame, power, and control. No matter what the religion or belief system, fear and shame are manipulated by those wanting power and control. Those abuses extend even to changing or twisting the basic scriptures or writings, and I believe Christianity is no exception. Booth claims that in the 4th century, the church came to see itself as the arbiter of conscience. He writes, the scriptures were no longer the authority. That power now rested with the bishops as Christ's vessels. This made the bishops divinely authorized to speak in the name of Christ. Evangelicals would likely respond to such a point by saying, well, that's not our problem. We believe that the Bible is the sole authority. Yet evangelicals can't get off that easily. 
For evangelicalism is based on a very particular interpretation of Scripture, one that does not come simply from the Bible itself. For instance, the notion of the inerrancy of Scripture doesn't come from the Bible at all. In fact, only in light of modern science could a notion like that even arise, which is why such a doctrine came into existence only in the wake of scientific modernity. But otherwise, this is a belief that simply didn't exist for most Christians. Unlike evangelicals, Roman Catholics only maintain that the Bible is authoritative on matters of faith and practice. In contrast, evangelicals believe the Bible is without error of any kind, which forces some of them to find ways to explain away ideas that don't match with our ideas today. But I want to close by considering how such beliefs affect our lives. There is the first problem, namely being so convinced that one is right that one is unwilling or perhaps even unable to see competing views as having any kind of validity. Just in case you're wondering, this is not a problem only among evangelicals. It's a problem for any kind of rigid doctrinal position, which could be political or social or even economic. If you already know the truth, what do you have to learn? However, given that religious beliefs are about something sacred, there is much more at stake. For many evangelicals, their evangelical identity is their primary identity. A second problem is this. Questioning things in the evangelical world makes one appear to be bad. I have spent literally hundreds of hours talking to evangelical students who had questions, some minor, some much more extensive. One of the difficulties is that such students almost always had friends or roommates or doormates who were alarmed that they were questioning anything. The most common response to anyone with questions or doubts is that such a person just needs to read the Bible more or spend more time in prayer. I hope that those listening will immediately understand that this advice is not merely unhelpful, but often hurtful. If one has questions about God or other theological beliefs, reading the Bible or attempting to pray is not really going to be much of a solution to that problem. But as I've said before, in evangelicalism, if anything goes wrong, it's your fault. Here's an example of what I mean from a website called Christian Today. I'm quoting, Some of us might think and feel like God deserted us, but he didn't. We deserted him. We left him to pursue our own desires. We left him because we wanted that job, that car, that high-end gadget, that person, and that happiness that we've been looking for. We were the ones that left him. He never left us. The implication of such a claim is that any doubts or questions about God are because we have moved away from God. Thus, doubts and questions are, by definition, our fault, because, so the story goes, God is always there waiting for us. Of course, if you know anything about medieval mystics, you probably realize that they speak of the dark night of the soul. Teresa of Lisieux spoke of the night of nothingness. Yes. People who claim to have mystical experience of God likewise claim that they have experienced God being very far away. And that's not merely some medieval problem. Mother Teresa's diaries give us a window into her soul, and what we discover is that she often felt that God was absent. When I say often, I mean that she experienced this sense of absence for 50 years. I do realize that there are, shall we say, differing views on Mother Teresa. 
But trying to argue that her problem was that she wasn't paying attention to God or had left him to pursue other things just doesn't make any sense. She had devoted her life to helping lepers, but she still felt spiritually empty. She writes, Where is my faith? Even deep down there's nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my soul. Put otherwise, the accusation that one who feels far from God is somehow to blame is sometimes abusive. In addition to feeling disoriented and confused, now one is condemned by others as evil or somehow to blame. But how then can there be any real inquiry into whatever it is one is supposed to believe? More of a literal interpretation of the Bible is a requirement. Then one is forced to accept everything presented at face value. For instance, the book of Jonah depicts a prophet who is directed by God to go to Nineveh to warn people there of a coming judgment. A key part of this story is that Jonah ends up being thrown overboard and spends three full days in the belly of a great fish who then vomits him up on shore. Hebrew scholars usually read this as a comedy. It's a myth in the sense that the story is designed to convey a message. However, unfortunately, evangelicals usually read this as a literal story, despite the fact that the idea that someone could be swallowed by a big fish or a whale, and live in the fish's belly for 72 hours seem like an impossibility. One can always say, but God can do anything. Perhaps so, but wouldn't it make more sense not to read this as a literal story? Note that this book doesn't begin with the disclaimer to the effect, this is just a story, don't try this at home. But it also doesn't begin with the claim, this is a literal story, and if you don't read it as a literal story, you will be condemned to hell. Alas, there is a heavy price to pay for reading as literal in story. In effect, you simply have to believe that somehow Jonah continued to breathe in the fish's stomach for 72 hours. And of course, if you can believe something as fantastic as that, then you can believe almost anything. That means, though, that you are forced to stop thinking and merely believe. Unfortunately, the Bible sometimes encourages such an approach. For instance, in 1 John 4, 6, we read, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and who is not from God does not listen to us. It should be obvious that this is a tautology that the reader is supposed to believe without question. There's no way in which such a statement can be proven or disproven, which means that any kind of critical interaction with the text becomes impossible. One is effectively silenced. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of On Becoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. I hope you'll join us for the next episode.